Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. We're going to continue our series this morning on the Holy Spirit that we've entitled Forgotten God. The title comes from the Francis Chan book where he talks about our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. And we're talked in this series about how that we as a church perhaps and as people in general have neglected an understanding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we talked two weeks ago about generally who the Holy Spirit is, Jesus' description of that in the book of John. And then last week we talked a little bit about what that looks like played out in our lives. Now, I understand fully that doing a three-week series on the Holy Spirit is not going to be able to exhaust the subject in any way. But we're attempting just to get our handles around some thoughts. And today's thought is, what would a Holy Spirit-led and filled church look like? Not just individual lives. And the easy answer might be, well, it would look like a bunch of people who were filled with the Spirit all in one place. And in some ways that's true. I mean, it's easy for us to look at the Galatians passage and say, that Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so a Spirit-filled church would be a church where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control were just a part of what happened. But I think that we need a better picture of what that might look like. And we're going to start in kind of a strange place today. We're going to start in the book of First Kings with one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's a story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. Now, growing up, many of you, if you were in church, heard this story. You probably know of this story. It was a time in the life of the nation of Israel and the life of the people of God when they were not following God's commands. They were living in a way that was not pleasing to God. In fact, uh, Elijah the prophet was prophesying against uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And they were in this process of really allowing the people of God to worship other gods. One of those gods was the, was the god Baal. And uh, we have in this story, the story of Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. Here's what he did. He called them forth and said, listen, the Lord has shut up the heavens. The Lord has made it where it can't rain. And he's not going to open the heavens until we return unto him. And he said, all right, we're going to set up a contest to show that the God I'm serving is the true God so that the people will turn back to him and the rains will come. So he goes up on top of Mount Carmel and he gets up there and he sets up this contest between the two gods. We pick the story up at the end of verse 24 where he says, all the people said, what you say is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are so many of you. It was Elijah, verse several. Call on the name of your God, do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. Now let me just ask you a quick question. Why did Baal not answer? Because there's no Baal, right? That's kind of part of the problem. But you see these people working towards something they think will bring about this fire from heaven, and they're trying to conjure up something. 
Elijah, seeing what has happened, starts what I believe is one of the first moments, not the first, but one of the first moments in recorded history for trash talking. All right? You know, you watch a basketball game, a football game now, everybody trash talks. Apparently, yesterday, some of the Tennessee defenders thought it'd be good to talk bad to that running back from Ole Miss. That didn't work out so well. He credited them for his game. Well, Elijah starts the trash talking. Look what he says in verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. The inference there is maybe he's hard of hearing your God. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or he's away on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to go wake him up. Now, you realize that sometimes translators of God's Word sanitize what they write. And that's a sanitary version of what Elijah said. What Elijah actually said is, perhaps your God's not listening. Perhaps he's away. You know what? He may be in the bathroom. Why don't you go wake him up? Now, again, why did Baal not answer? Because Baal's not there. And so Elijah knows that, and he's just continuing. Verse 28, that doesn't discourage them. They shout louder. They slash themselves, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. So they've been going at this since about 8 o'clock in the morning. Noon passes. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they go from 8 to 5, crying, yelling, dancing, screaming, cutting themselves. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. He took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. That means a lot to you, I know, the two seas of seed. About 13 quarts. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it a third time. The water ran around the altar. It even filled the trench. Now, how long had these prophets of Baal been at it? Hours, right? Seven, eight hours. It comes to the time for the sacrifice. The prophet Elijah steps forward and he prays, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known today. Uh, you are God in Israel. I am your servant. Have done all these things. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the woods, the stones, and the soil. And also, and I love this picture, licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now you read that story, the obvious understanding of that is the prophets of Baal were calling on a God that does not exist. Elijah, the prophet of God, called on the only one capable of doing that, and God brought the fire, right? I was reading recently in a book, and the Lord has haunted me with this image over the last two or three weeks as I've been preparing for this series and working through this text. The author of this book says that 
he began to wonder why in the world that the American church did not have the power that it once had. He says, when you look around, we have more money than we've ever had. We have good preachers. We have good music. We have nice buildings. We've got all the things that the world would think would give us the ability to make a difference, and yet we're not making the difference we once made. And in the book he says, the Lord brought to mind the image of the prophets of Baal, standing around, chanting and dancing and singing and fellowshipping and having a great time, but not calling on the only one that made any difference in their lives. My first thought when I read that was, of course, we're not like the prophets of Baal. I mean, they were praying to Baal. We, we, we come in, we talk about Jesus, we talk about God. Of course, we're not like the prophets of Baal. And the more I thought about it, the more God began to convict me that it's not an issue of the name on who we're calling. It's on whether or not we truly are calling on the name of the only one who can make a difference. And whether in our hearts and our lives and our minds, we are completely dependent on Him. And I begin to think about the times in my life when I go through the motions of what a Christian life is supposed to look like, and yet I live my life completely unaware or not dependent on the only one who can give me the power to live. And I thought about the churches that I've been a part of and the moments in this life of this church even when perhaps all of the things looked well and the building is good and the people are doing what they're supposed to do and the music is good and the preaching is good and yet the Holy Spirit of God is not guiding and leading and empowering God's people to do God's work. I began to ask the question, well, what does that look like? What what would that even look like in America today? You know, one of the problems I think has happened is we've become so accustomed to what the American church looks like, we forget that that may not be what the church is supposed to look like. So I went to the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, we get some understanding of what that kind of looks like. And you can follow along if you've got the NIV or New Living or, or whatever version you might have. I've put it up on the screen, and we're going to kind of read it together off the screen out of the message because I just like the way the message paraphrase captures a couple of things in here about what's happening. At the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, Luke is about to launch into another series of stories about the church. And every so often, especially early in the book, Luke will give us a summary statement, kind of like saying those are the big things that happened, but here's what was also happening. And this is kind of one of those summary statements. And it says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following. The whole congregation, the key word there is whole, of believers was united as one. One heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Master Jesus, and grace was on all of them. And so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. Finishes saying this. Those who owned fields or houses sold them, bought the price of the sale to the apostles, made an offering of it. The apostles then distributed according to each person's need. When I read that that, uh, summary statement by Luke, 
I couldn't help but think that it sounds different than our experience even today. It sounds different as a church from the experience that most of us have had growing up or continue to have in church today. And so I asked the question, what is different or what do I see here about a church that is committed to the Lord, that is asking for the Lord's presence, that is led by the Holy Spirit? And there are four things I want us to see this morning quickly. First of all, I see in here unity. That's what it says right at the beginning, right? It says in verse 32 out of the NIV, all the believers were one in heart and mind. The idea there literally is complete and total unity. They were people that lived together, grew together, cried together, laughed together, struggled together, and succeeded together. One author has said about this group, there was once a community of believers who were so totally devoted to God that their life together was charged with the Spirit's power. In that band of Christ followers, believers loved each other with a radical kind of love. The idea here is that these people gathered together and were unified. Now let's talk about that for a minute because I think it's important to understand what kind of people we're talking about and where they were. By this time, the church would have numbered in the thousands. Right? Because Acts chapter 2 tells us that on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. And then at the end of chapter 2, it tells us, and the Lord added to their number how often? Daily, right? So we have this a few weeks out. We have thousands of people. Now, it tells us also in the early part of the New Testament, early part of, of Acts, I mean, that they were gathering on a daily basis together. Now, here's the truth. Those thousands of people were probably not gathering all in one place on a daily basis together. But what was probably happening is as homes all across Jerusalem, people were gathering in homes to fellowship together, talk together, eat together, minister together. And so you've got all of these people in places all over Jerusalem spread out, learning together, sharing the Lord's Supper together. And what's amazing about that is if you read even the earliest accounts in Acts, you find out that there were people of different ages, socioeconomic levels, different backgrounds, different jobs. They were completely different. And yet Scripture says they were of one heart and of one mind. Now how in the world does unity come to a group of people that are so different. In fact, I, I would tell you this, that I think it's hard to read the New Testament and not see that the New Testament church was much more diverse than even our congregation. So how were they so different and yet united? Well, the simple answer is, well, they were filled with the Spirit, they were living by the Spirit, and that's true. But there are two important things that I think that we see even in this passage, and that we understand from the rest of the book. First of all, they constantly lowered themselves in service to one another. One way to say that is they crucified themselves on a daily basis. They joined their loves, their hopes, their passions together. They fulfilled what Paul would write about in Philippians when he said that we were to make his joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. They were making every effort, in Ephesians 4.3 it tells us, to keep the unity of the Spirit. 
And so there were these people that were constantly crucifying their wants, their desires, their needs. If you read current uh, kind of literature, whether it's in Scripture or in, in religious stuff or outside of it, one of the things that you notice is that they are calling us the most self-centered generations that have ever existed. In the history of the world, there has never been a more self-centered or self-sustaining generation. It's good for us, right? Congratulations on that. The problem is that self-centeredness has made its way into the church. And so in the world, when we're concerned about our wealth, our glamour, our power, our prestige, then it comes over to the church and we're worried about the church and how it affects us. We want what's out of it for us. Whether it's our program or our ministry or our legacy or our building or our songs or our Sunday school class, it's all about us. A study came out recently that showed that church loyalty is at an all-time low. Now, I grew up, most of you know, in West Tennessee in kind of a smaller town. And when I grew up, everybody knew what everybody's family was. So you got introduced to the Smith. Oh, he's of the Smiths. Yeah, they're the Methodists over there, the Methodist Smiths. And you go introduced to the Donovans. Yeah, yeah well, I know the Donovans. The Donovans, they're the Lutherans. I know, I know the Donovans. We didn't have many Lutherans in West Tennessee, but we had a few. Well, you know the Larsons. The Larsons, they're Baptist. They're the Baptist Larsons. And the truth is that it had been that way for generations, right? Some of you grew up in towns like that where if somebody was a Baptist, their mom had been a Baptist, their mama's mom had been a Baptist, mama's mama's mom has been a Baptist, you know, on down the line. That's not the case anymore. Now, some of that's not all bad because the truth is you don't need to be a Baptist because your mama, mama's ba- mama's Baptist, right? But some of it just means that there's no loyalty because people are constantly searching for what makes them feel fulfilled. And so they don't plug into a community of believers and live with them and love with them and hurt with them. They just don't. We end up with churches that are focused on youth, focused on adults, focused on boomers, focused on busters, focused on Gen Xers, focused on Gen Yers, be one on Gen Zers whenever that comes. Instead of a church seeking unity in diversity. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ and His church, He wants us to crucify ourselves. Now, here's the second thing. Once we crucify ourselves for unity, what we then do is we focus on Jesus. The people of the early church were people that had different backgrounds, different beliefs about food, clothing, all that stuff, yet they were united in Christ. This past week, I spent some time at the Tennessee Baptist Convention, and uh I spent some time with my father-in-law, and we're always in those kind of settings, and, and uh, I just love the wisdom that he can give sometimes. And there was discussion about um, disunity that can come from being in two services. There's a, a church in the convention that has moved back to one, uh, one service, and their theme for it is one service, one Sunday school, one church, as if... Two, church, two Sunday schools, two worships is two churches. And I, my father-in-law, just in the way that he can, in short way, just kind of said, anytime the church is united around anything but Christ, 
it's not united. And so it's not about a service, it's not about a building, it's not about a program, it's not about a pastor, it's not about a music guy. It's focused and unified around Christ. Can you imagine this? In that early church, how many apostles were there? It's not a trick question. How many apostles were there? I know some of you are going, wait, Judas betrayed, but they replaced him. Let's see, there are 12, all right? So there were 12 apostles. Now, each one of them was a fairly strong leader in their own way. Now, they were different, but they were strong leaders. Can't you just imagine that there were some people that gradually, naturally gravitated towards certain of those apostles as leaders? I mean, it could have been easily that you had your Peter group, you had your John group, you had your Andrew group, you had your Simon the Zealot group, right? And if they weren't united around Christ, then suddenly you start to get battles. Well, I just did not like what Peter had to say the other day. I think we need to let John have a little more of that speaking time. Well, I'll tell you, Simon the Zealot, he's a little out there. I mean, he gets a little crazy. I think we need to be a little more conservative in our approach. We need, we need to find one that's a little less out there. In fact, when Paul's writing to Corinthians, right, he says, some of you say, I'm of the camp of Apollos. Some of you say, I'm of the camp of Paul. Some of you say, I'm of the camp of Christ. And he goes to him and he says, listen, it doesn't matter what camp you're of. We're all around Jesus. And these early church people were unified supernaturally because the Spirit had brought them together around Christ. God that I've quoted a lot in this here, a guy named A.W. Tozer says this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious. And they're turned away turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What he says there is interesting because he says, if your church decides we're going to be unified, so let's have a unity dinner and be unified in all our decisions, you're not going to be as unified if you just said, let's all follow Christ. First thing you see in that early church filled with the Spirit is unity. The second thing you see in that early church is sacrifice. Now, while that unity sounds a little strange to us, this sounds downright bizarre. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Part of the result of being in a self-centered society is that we all act like two-year-olds about our stuff. Right? You do, all right? If you don't believe me, let me come into your house today and take your TV or something, all right? I wouldn't get out the door. You'd be calling somebody. My preacher just walked out the door with my TV. We all like our stuff. I mean, it says right here, no one claimed any of his possessions was his own. They shared, what does it say? Everything. One translation says all. Those are those words of the original language. The word everything means everything. All. I liked how the, the message paraphrase said, said it because I hear that around the house all the time. That's mine. It said nobody said, that's mine. You can't have it. Anybody ever hear that around your house? Yeah, I do. 
And that's just between Susan and I. That's not even the boys. No. I'm kidding about that. <laughs> we, coming home yesterday, or coming home from eating yesterday, we went out to lunch yesterday. My parents were in town. We went out to eat. And we were in the in the back seat. Um, Susan had found in her purse a long-lost Superman or Batman figure. I can't remember which one. And in the back seat, Luke somehow ended up with both the Superman and the Batman. And World War Four, eight, whatever it was, started in the back seat. Well, it escalated because one of my children thought that one of the figures in particular was his. He didn't want just any of them. He wanted the one that was his. So with children, it's easy to see that, right? That's mine, not yours. It's the toddler rules. If it's mine, if I think it's mine, if I want it to be mine, if I've ever had it as mine, it's mine. But the truth is, even as adults in churches, we have pulled ourselves away from each other so much that if somebody in church needs something, we would have to calculate everything we could about how we could still keep our stuff and yet meet that need. It says in Scripture that they gave everything. They didn't consider any of it to be theirs. I saw a uh, startling statistic last week that was just um, discouraging. It said that the average, uh, the average Christian today gives in the low 2% of their income to their church. Now, let's just do a quick review. It, a tithe means what? 10%, right? And that's the minimum. That's the bottom line. What you'll find interesting here is that uh, when it talks about people selling their property and bringing it to the apostles, that's not their tithe. That's their offering, which is above their tithe. The average Christian is in the low 2%. And what was in this article that was even more startling is that in the 1930s, now I know most of us weren't around in the 1930s, but anybody remember what was happening in the 30s? The Depression, right? In the Depression era, the amount of giving was over a percentage and a half point higher. So that in the worst economic crisis in the history of this country, people were giving more to the church then than they are now, or they were even five years ago. You said, what's the recession? Here's the crazy thing. In the recession, it's gone from about 2.4% to about 2.3%. So in the greatest economic times of our country, people were giving less. Now here's the thing. I am firmly convinced that God will not trust us with the most precious things of His kingdom until we're willing to trust Him with a small part of what He's already given us. And this church gave sacrificially. I just want you to think, I mean, we read that in the Scripture, we go, isn't that nice? Isn't that great? I want you to think right now, if in this moment, the Lord whispered in your ear in a way that was undeniable, I want you to go this afternoon, I want you to call a real estate agent, tell him you're going to sell your property and give everything you get out of it to the church. And I want you to think whether you'd be willing to do that or not. And I don't mean, of course I would, Pastor. If the Lord asked me to do it, I would do it. I mean, would you do it? That's what these people were doing. And if you don't believe that it was a serious thing, just read the next chapter. 
because there were two people that sold the land and didn't bring it all, and they said, we brought it all, and they're dead. They gave. They took care of each other. They took care of each other's needs. If somebody had a need, it wasn't their need. It was our need. If a family was struggling with their children, it wasn't their problem. It was our problem. If a family had lost a job, one of the spouses had lost a job, it wasn't their loss. It was our loss. By the same token, if someone had a a great day, a wonderful celebration, if they were celebrating something that magnificent God had done, it wasn't their victory. It was our victory. And what the Holy Spirit did in their lives is when they were unified around the Spirit, around Christ, when they were sacrificially giving all that they had, then you'll see that power was just a natural outflow of what came. Look what it says there in Acts. It says in verse 33, with great power, great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. The word for great in the original is the word mega. That's the word we get our word mega from. All right? Mega means big. If somebody announces a uh, $235 million jackpot, it's a mega jackpot. And it says here in Scripture that they were announcing with mega power. The apostles continue to testify. What it says literally is the same power that brought fire from heaven that Elijah called upon is that power that is due to them. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. That same power that God uses to sustain the universe is available to the apostles as they testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know, I was thinking as we were singing... uh, Song, bless that wonderful name. Sing that wonderful name. A little jazzed up, right? A little. I thought we were going to have a steel guitar up here for a minute. That'd been good. But the third verse that we sang today was preach that wonderful name. And I'll be honest with you, even as a preacher, sometimes I think, boy, that's my verse. Yeah, I'm preaching that wonderful name. But that wasn't a verse for me. It's a verse for us. Preach there simply means to proclaim, to share. And the apostles were taking the lead. But I can guarantee you those believers that were meeting in their homes together with great power were testifying. And what I think also is interesting is this. That the implication in this passage is that the apostles were given greater power in their proclamation because of what the people were doing under the Spirit's guidance. I want you to think how, how foreign that is to us. We live in an age when pastors get up and speak the Word of God, and some with power and some with not. We live in an age when we see pastors falling in different places where they're not serving the Lord as they once were. We live in an age when we talk about pastors and put them on a pedestal, and if they, don't, if they fall, it's their fault. But Scripture seems to suggest that as the unity and the sacrificialness of of the people in the community of God grows, so does the power of the proclamation from their leaders. And it says here that with great power they testified. Now here's the, the last thing. It wasn't just power that they had. They had unity, 
sacrifice, power, and grace. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord, and much grace was upon them all. I like how the English Standard Version uh, puts it, because it shows that that word really is attached to both of them. And it says literally that they were preaching with great power and with great grace they received. Now, most of us, when we think of grace, we think of our own personal grace, the the thing that, that Christ has done for us and saving us. But the truth is, what is mentioned here is that grace is any gift of God that we don't deserve. And just to be perfectly honest with you, we don't deserve anything from God. And it says, with great power they were giving testimony, and great grace was upon them all. I started this quote a little earlier, but it says at the end of about this community, it says, they took off their mask. If we want real unity, there's got to be authenticity. There's got to be openness and honesty. They shared their lives together. They laughed and cried and prayed and sang and served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those who had more shared for, those who had more shared freely with those who had less until barriers melted away. People related together in ways that bridged gender and race, celebrated cultural differences. Acts tells us that this community of believers, this church, offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so beautiful, it took their breath away. It was so bold, so creative, so dynamic, that they couldn't resist it. As I was finishing up preparation for this, I'd spent quite a bit of time earlier on First Kings, and then I'd spent some time in Acts. As I was finishing up this Acts part, the Lord just kind of said to me, can you see the complete dependence that these people had on me? And I just felt Him draw me back to that First Kings passage where those prophets of Baal trusted in everything but God. And Elijah trusted only in God. And this quote came up, a quote from Karl Barth. And it just has haunted me in that same way that that passage has for a couple of weeks. And it says, when we are at our wits end for an answer, then the Holy Spirit can give us an answer. But how can He give us an answer when we are still well supplied with all sorts of answers on our own? And I couldn't help but think of the number of times in my life, in my family, even in the leadership of this church, or in my walk with the Lord, that I have tried to figure out the answer to a God-sized problem all on my own. I couldn't remember how many times I've been to the Lord, and it's just an honesty moment with you, and said, Lord, we have this problem. Here are three ways that I see it could be solved. How about you fix it one of those three ways? Now, I wasn't arrogant enough to say it that way, but it would be, Lord, we're in a, we're in a mess here. Now, I could see this could happen, or this could happen, or this could happen. I'd like for your will to be done. And what I really meant is, whichever of those three you think is okay, you go ahead and do. But when was the last time I was completely at my wit's end without an answer and depended completely upon the Lord? I'll be real honest with you. We we have some exciting opportunities in this church in the months and the years ahead. We also have some great challenges in this church in the weeks and months and years ahead. 
And everything within me wants to figure out the plan to get over those challenges. And over the last couple of weeks, the Lord has just reminded me again and again and again that, wow, it's not your job to figure out how to fix God-sized problems. That's my job. Your job is to be obedient. And I know sometimes pastors are supposed to stand up in front of you and say, here's my five-year, ten-year, fifteen-year plan. I think I got one in my mind, but I don't know that it's the Lord's, and that's the problem. But I do think He's going to call us to make some major steps of faith in the weeks and the months and the years ahead. And the question will be then, will we try every way possible to figure it out on our own, or will we at our wit's end fall on our faces before the Lord and say, we're depending completely on you?